Gateway, good day to you. Happy Sunday. Today we wrap up in the gospel according to Mark chapter seven. If you thought I was gonna say the whole thing, we're like just getting started. <laughs> we're approaching the midway point of the book itself and really the end of the first third. And what's curious about the gospel according to Mark is that he clips along at a pretty fast pace in this first section. And then in the second little section, he slows down down, leading to then the final section, which uh, biblical scholars would call passion narratives, essentially Jesus's journey to the cross on Calvary. And it's in that space that Mark goes into almost slow-mo. But here, Mark is still moving at a fast pace. He's putting in front of us action-packed scenarios that draw us in, cause us to reflect and consider what's come before. And part of the reason it moves so fast is so that we might see the unity with which Mark is portraying Jesus, how these common themes develop. Today, such a common theme develops as well. You see, as, as we're here at the end of chapter seven and Jesus is touching people all over the place and then telling them to shut up. <laughs> so what in the world is going on? Well, let's read the passage, pray, and then we'll work our way through. So this is Mark chapter seven, starting in verse 31. This is what we read. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And just pause right there with me. Um, if you're not well-versed in ancient Near East geography, Jesus is leading, leaving uh, kind of the modern day coast of Lebanon and around the Mediterranean and then coming back down to the northern parts of Israel and the Galilee, but up and around those parts in the Sea of Galilee and doing a horseshoe over to the Decapolis. Decapolis is the region that was occupied by the Roman military oppressors. It's the same region that we've seen Jesus go to. It had the demon-possessed man, the man who was possessed by a legion of demons, the man who Jesus said, you cannot follow me, the man who Jesus sent out to proclaim the fame of Jesus, this is where Jesus is headed, to the Decapolis. Verse 32, and they brought to him, that is the people of the region of Decapolis, they brought to Jesus a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, literally tongue-tied, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looking up to heaven, he sighed out and said to him, Ephata, that is, be opened. And his ears were open and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And then get this, verse 36. And he charged them to tell no one the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let us pray. Father, in your presence, there is freedom to be had. We read that 
where your presence is, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so, Lord, I would pray that we who name the name of Jesus would remind ourselves today that we, through your word, would hear clearly that there is freedom to be had, not just for a certain people, but that the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus comes to proclaim liberty to people who we do not expect to receive liberty and even people we don't want to receive liberty. People like us. So Spirit, come, anoint my lips. I pray that as we speak from your word, you through the power of your word would call our hearts back to allegiance. Spur us on to sit with you in your presence, to make your fame and deeds known in our time. Amen. So in Mark's gospel, Jesus is constantly touching people. And that sounds odd to us. I, I know I even hear it when I say it, but he's doing this. He's not, not to mention that Jesus is touching all the wrong people. He's touching people he's not supposed to be touching. Because according to the purity laws and codes of his culture, rabbis of whom Jesus is one, a teacher of the law, they are the clean people. They're the ones who are supposed to be leading leaders into a greater understanding of what qualifies a person to be in God's presence. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And um, almost immediately frustrates the cultural expectations of a rabbi. Just think back with me through the gospel according to Mark. And rather than think, well, actually just turn there. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1. And here in Mark chapter 1, we see Jesus with a leper. Here in verse 40, this is what we read. And a leper came to him. A leper, a person with a skin disease, an infectious skin disease, one who would be called unclean, came to Jesus imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. 41. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Jesus sees this man. He, he sees him. Not, not how we see homeless people on the side of the street. Like He sees into his pain. He identifies with his pain and with pity, with empathy, he moves toward him. He extends his healing presence. Just hold on to that. Later on in the Gospel according to Mark, in chapter 5, Mark wraps up one healing story inside of another healing story. Like this little Russian nesting doll of healing stories, it's, it's pretty rad. But here, there's like whole heaps of touching going on. And what we see is that in Mark chapter 5, Jairus, a synagogue ruler, he pleads with Jesus. He says, my daughter is dying. Please come put your hands on her so that she may be made well, so she may be healed and live. And as Jesus makes his way to Jairus' house to, to do this thing, to lay his hands on this unwell, Jairus' sick daughter, Jesus is interrupted. 
And this woman with a long-term bleeding condition, she presses through the crowd, makes her way to Jesus, and then secretly touches him. And look how Mark emphasizes her contact with Jesus. But pay attention to the touching that happens here. This is Mark chapter 5, verse 24. We read this. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. The, the idea there is that they were pressing in almost to the point of suffocation. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. And she had heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Now, if you recall from this teaching that the garment there, the idea is this kind of mystery, this uh, folklore, if you will, that, that when the Messiah, the, the anointed one, the, the promised deliverer of Israel came on the scene, that his prayer shawl, that in the, in the tzitzit of his kanap, the strings hanging from the edge of his prayer shawl, there would be healing there. She seems to hold this mystery of God's anointed one dear to her heart because we read this in verse 28. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, and check this out, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And clearly his disciples don't get it. So Jesus again goes after it, and he looked and he looked to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth, essentially lays her whole life in front of him. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. See, in the next sequence, in verses 35 to 43, Jesus arrives at Jairus' house, his original destination, only to find that Jairus' daughter has been pronounced dead. And Jesus says, she's not dead. She's asleep. People laugh at Jesus, but he sends them away and brings only a select few people in there. And when he sees the daughter, he takes her by the hand and raises her from death to life. He reaches out and touches her. There's something about the presence of Jesus that draws anyone and everyone near. Everyone wants to get near Jesus because there's this spaciousness within which Jesus moves in the world. It's like he invites people near him. And what's amazing in Mark 5 is, is that Jesus would be counted as doubly unclean. Remember, this is like a Russian nesting doll of uncleanness. And according to Leviticus 15, if Jesus touches this woman or is touched by this woman with the unceasing flow of blood, he's unclean. And if Jesus touches a dead body, According to Numbers chapter 19, Jesus is unclean again, and he does both. He is doubly unclean, and as if this theme of clean and unclean isn't intense enough, in our teaching text from today, Mark turns the volume up one more notch to 11. 
Jesus literally puts his fingers in a Gentile man's ears and even seems to exchange spit with the guy. And to readers in the ancient Near East, Jesus's actions would be perceived as horrific. Like, what's he doing over there, touching those people? And yet this is happening all over the place in Mark. Jesus is getting close to all the wrong people. He's touching everyone he's not supposed to touch. Like, doesn't Jesus know that all these people are out of bounds? Well, yes and no. You see, for Mark, the kingdom of God is itself an invasion of purity. So that wherever Jesus is, is where the presence of God's kingdom comes to rest. And in turn, where the power of God's kingdom is, there the power of God is actively reversing the dehumanizing structures and systems and sins of the world. And Jesus does this like no one else. He's not out in Galilee land with a sword trying to like flip over the oppressors and, and turn them on their heads or take their heads. And he's not in Galilee trying to make political power grabs. In fact, it's the opposite in both spaces. He's honoring the shamed and giving power away to the powerless. See, in an honor-shame context, there is this idea of a limited amount of good. That is, there's only a limited amount of honor to go around. Everywhere else, there's shame. So if honor goes out, shame goes in. It's, that's just how it works. So that's how the scales move. That's the context of Jesus. That's the context of first century Israel-Palestine. There's only a limited amount of honor to go around. So some have honor, like Jesus, who is a rabbi, but others don't. A person like a deaf and mute man would not. But here's the oddity of this moment. For Jesus, once again, this is nothing new. Just think back about even the stories we've gone through. Jesus has been giving his honor away, giving power away this whole time. With the leper, Jesus saw him. He saw into his pain, reached out and touched him. No leprosy came on Jesus, but the man was cleansed and made whole. He searched for the woman. He, he searched for a person who had little to no status in that community and made her whole. And I love this line, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him. He turned to the crowd. He turned and asked, who touched me? See, when that power went out, it elevated this woman from an outcast to a daughter. It changed her status and her position in the kingdom of God and that she became central to the story of God, that we're still telling her story to this very day. But it's all upside down. It's, it's as though Mark is giving us moment after moment to see that in Jesus' name, there is a new way forward, that in God's economy, it's a different scale. It's one of equity. You might hear it where preachers say at the, the foot of the cross is level. That's because God measures humanity with a different scale because he sees into the full measure of our pain. He takes it into himself and he identifies with it. But consider this man in our teaching text. 
He's a deaf and mute man. A man without honor in a world, but, but one whom Jesus sees and sees fully. And rather than make this deaf and tongue-tied man a spectacle amongst the crowd, and, and possibly then like elevating his own status even further, Jesus does the odd thing. He does the contrarian things. He does the countercultural thing, if you will, and he takes this man aside. And in private, he attends to this man as it is significant to him. In the details Mark provides about the spit and the fingers, how close Jesus is, the moan Jesus lets out, the cry of his heart, all these elements help us to see how Jesus sees this man. And here's what I mean. If you can't speak, how do you communicate? Well, you would, you would sign. I love how Tim Keller reflected on this passage. He, he builds all this element up of, of saying, how could Jesus engage with this man? Then he reveals this little thing. He says, Jesus touches his, his ears. He, he touches his tongue. It's like he is seeing himself into the pain of this man. He's honoring him by communicating with him as he can understand and perceive. He meets him right where he's at. He looses his tongue. And then after all of that, it gets even weirder because Jesus tells them to be quiet. And this is what scholars call the messianic secret, why some people call Mark the anti-evangelist. <laughs> but I love how Tim Gombis, a New Testament scholar, I love how he frames this tension for us. He says this, he says, don't get caught up in the miracles. Don't get caught up in the healings. Don't get caught up in the exorcisms. Keep quiet about all that. Hold your fire. Because if you get excited too early, you'll miss it. You'll preach and embody something that is less than true. And how true that is. That, that we celebrate the moments of Jesus breaking through and seeing release from bondage to addiction, be it alcoholic or sexual, be it like we see release in a relationship, we see healing and restoration and we celebrate, but, but we don't acknowledge the pain. We, we don't lament. We don't see it fully for what it is. And so we become intoxicated by moments of celebration. We, we think that our, cel like our celebratory moments are the best moments with Jesus. But let's not forget that Mark is setting the stage for what's truly central in the gospel. That is the gospel. That this whole thing, the text itself, the gospel according to Mark, although it is the shortest biography of Jesus' life and ministry, it has the same duration as Matthew and Luke when it comes to Jesus' passion narrative. When Mark is telling the story of Jesus' walk to the cross, he stretches it out. Why does he do that? Because he wants us to see the whole truth. So why keep quiet? Because the story is not over. Mark has a keen grasp of our bent toward triumphalism and power. He knows the human desires to, to strike out and make a name for ourselves. It's like Mark knows what it is to be an American, to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, to make a name for yourself. And if somebody gets in your way, cancel them. 
It's like this gospel is for us. And Mark says, wait. Yes, eagerly expect of Jesus and wait. Sit with it. Hold on to it. Linger in the goodness of it. Because like those with, with Jesus, his disciples, Mark wants us to wait until the very end of his account to fully experience all that God is. It's, it's actually, it's captured in the gospel according to Mark chapter 15. So turn there with me. Because it's in this climactic scene that we see Jesus' identity revealed as it is. This is Mark chapter 15, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it to a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, let us wait Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, the centurion who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is the identity of Jesus. And Mark's contrast of a tearing veil and the confession of the centurion is pointed and on purpose. It's so that the climax of Mark comes together at this question, where is God? The veil is torn not to symbolize that the way of God or to God is open. It's torn to expose that the temple is a sham. That the whole thing is broken. That the whole thing has been corrupted by power and pride and greed. There's nothing there and nobody's home. So where is God? He's the man who just died on the cross. That is the climax of Mark. And who's touched by this moment? Who sees Jesus now? Who truly perceives him? Is it God's people? No. Do the religious leaders? No. They're the ones who sent Jesus to the cross. Is, are Jesus' own disciples there to truly see him and be touched by that moment? No. They're too mystified and offended by a Jesus who uh, like, would head to a cross in the first place. They're not going to follow him there. So who is it that sees Jesus? Or to say it another way, who's touched by Jesus? It's the oppressor. It's the Roman centurion. This whole thing is upside down. So the gospel isn't about triumphalism. The gospel is about giving yourself away in love. It's about a man who bore death, who bore sin's curse on our behalf so that we might live in Christ unto God. 
that by giving our allegiance to Jesus, who tasted death for us, we might live into the fullness of life right now. See, the end of chapter 7 is not the end of the gospel according to Mark. And as followers of Jesus, we need, Gateway, we need a fresh resolve to make it to the end. Maybe this season is for us an extended gift to quiet our hearts, to stop clamoring for what the right thing to do next is and how the gospel compels us to do it. Maybe we just need to sit in it for once. Maybe we need to feel it. Maybe we actually need to reflect and see what pains are there. Maybe we need to ask of ourselves, who are the people who we unintentionally push aside that we cast out? Is there space in our community for the single mother, for the one who's hung up again in that past pattern of sin? Is there space for the person who doesn't look like you and me? Is there space for the person whose gender identity or sexual orientation is different than ours, than mine? Maybe this is the time where we sit with the weight of a Jesus who honors the person, who gives away power so that we, might be a church, might be a community gathered together, united around his love, who can do the same, who can truly see people. So maybe we need to receive from Jesus both his healing and the quiet of his presence. I think that this is our call gateway in a moment such as this, to quiet our hand, to quiet our hearts, and to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. Let us pray. Jesus, would you, by the power of your Spirit, help us to see afresh. Help us to receive you and to sit with you in a moment such as this, to make a way forward in love, even and especially if it's not the way that we designed. Increase our faith, I pray. Amen. Amen.